Last week we talked about the Akedah, or the binding. What's something significant about that story that anyone remembers? Something's easy. The mountain was probably Gilgotha. The mountain was probably Gilgotha. Why else would you have him travel to that spot, you know? Just kind of interesting. Um, What was first mentioned in that story? Love, right? The first mention of the word love is in that chapter, which, and I, and I, I say coincidentally, of course, I say that with quotes around it, because it just happens to fit perfectly with John three sixteen, probably the most famous verse of the Bible, um, dealing with uh, God's only son. Of course, talking about Abraham's only son, which of course Abraham did have two sons, but he's focusing on the child of the promise for reasons. So. We saw how a father took his son to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And, of course, the angel of the Lord interceded and said, No, you're not going to do that. I'm going to provide myself an offering. And, of course, that was probably Jesus talking and not an angel. Um, And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, new guys here, you can go back a couple of weeks to the Angel of the Lord study where we talked about who the identity of the Angel of the Lord is. Um, but yeah, we see how a father is going to sacrifice his son, and we see a lot of parallels between Abraham as being the father of God, Isaac being the son uh, of God, and um, <clears throat> just a whole lot of different little specific things. It took them three days to make the journey. Um, of course, the son was obedient. And the son carried the wood up the hill, not the father. And of course, Jesus carried the cross up the hill, not the you know. So a lot of lot of little specific, neat little details, um, which that story, of course, ultimately is not for Isaac or for Abraham, but it's for everyone that's reading it, of course. So us. So we're going to talk tonight. A kind of a that was kind of a to be continued how we left off last week. So because now we're going to actually continue that story on to later, because we noticed as the story ended last week, we didn't hear anything anymore about Isaac after the little drama on the hill. So what probably happened is Isaac was raised his knife, or I'm sorry, Abraham raised his knife, angel of the Lord interrupted. They both obviously survived the incident. Abraham of course, thought, well, if I'm going to kill my son, you're going to have to raise him from the dead, the dead God, because you've promised me grandchildren so through Isaac. So, and of course, that was interrupted. Abraham left. According to the text, it says Abraham met his two men. Doesn't say anything anymore about Isaac. Isaac vanishes from the text. Of course, we realize that he most likely did probably go with his son back down to the two men at the bottom of the hill. But for some reason, Isaac's omitted from the scripture. The son is you could say, not here anymore. So we see a parallel there, kind of a Holy Spirit little hint there that something happens to the son after his his, uh, sacrifice. So we're calling this uh, this evening the the Kedushin, which is a Hebrew word for basically betrothal. Um, It's like a ceremony before the wedding. So we're going to have an understanding of marriage all you guys in here, I'm like, uh-oh. <clears throat> and the women are like, oh boy, can't wait. 
No, um, we're going to talk about Gentile brides. And there's surprisingly a lot of them in the scripture. When you think of the Old Testament, you think of Judaism, you think of rules, you think of the law, you think Gentiles are bad. But what we'll see is a lot of Gentileness, you could say, in the Old Testament. And ultimately, the church is Jew and Gentile together. So, Jewish weddings, got Gentile brides and Jewish weddings. So, it's going to be kind of an interesting discussion tonight. And of course, the marriage of Isaac. All right. So, first, we're going to get the fun stuff out of the way. We're going to talk about marriage, like why we're actually talking about it, why there's a lot of talk of the bride, the groom in the scripture. Um, So, we need to tackle that subject before we, we move on. So, why do we have marriage? Well, we got to go back to, of course, where's the first marriage mentioned? Very early on in the scripture, it's in Genesis. So, Genesis 2, chapter 18 is actually where it's mentioned, if you just want to write that down. So, why do we have marriage? Well, the Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man, for the man, to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Okay, so it's not good for man to be alone. Okay, so he needs a helper. Do you think God knew that he uh, needed a helper? Or did he go, hmm, that man down there sure sure looks lonely. Or maybe he wanted him to kind of experience what it was like to not have a helper. Who knows? Interesting questions there. Lots of questions can be raised by this. So so what kind of helper did God intend for, intend for man? Well, he made animals. But that wasn't good enough, obviously. So just put woman there. So he, he made a woman. By the way, what kind of helper is not suitable for man? So pretty much everything he created before he created the woman. So let's just say animals, plants. I mean, really, the creation itself um, is not a good helper for man. Um, So that kind of goes against what modern society might tell you is good enough for man or is good enough for a woman, whatever. You can say you're a man, you can say you're a woman, and that's just as good as being a man and being a woman and... You know where I'm going. I'm not going to get into a political discussion or politically incorrect or correct uh, discussion about that. But Scripture says that the only helper that was suitable for man was a woman. So, And in in effect, the only helper suitable for a woman is a man. So they go together. Okay, so what kind of helper is not suitable? Just pretty much anything except a woman is not suitable for a man. So Genesis 2.18 also says, uh, or wait, it's not Genesis 2.18. It's right after that. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. Whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. I'm going to call you donkey, giraffe, rhinoceros, bombardier beetle. I mean... All kinds of things. Man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. Dodo bird. No, anyway. But for Adam, there was not a found a helper suitable for him. So none of these animals could, could cut it, basically. So why didn't God make the woman like he made Adam? So how did he make Adam? 
out of out of the ground, right? He formed him. I mean, can't really get any more specific than that. I mean, he didn't make him out of any animals. Um, didn't make him out of primordial goo. Made him out of the dust of the ground. He didn't, you know, spontaneously evolve out of uh, a chemical here, a chemical there, spark from the lightning flash and water, you know. That, that's what the world wants to tell us and the textbooks still tell us, but it's not exactly how it happened. Um, he was created in a day and, and that's it. So why didn't he make the woman like that? What did he make the woman out of? His rib. His rib. Why didn't he make her out of the, the knee? The patella? Or the cranium? Part of the head? She. So the rib protects the man. You could say the rib is a protecting bone. It's actually regenerative, but we won't go there. The rib is at his side at all times. So you could write that down and say the rib is at his side. It's not below him. It's not above him. It's his equal. Okay? So the woman is literally the man's equal out of the man it's what woman means out of man and she is his equal she's always at his side and she protects him so and of course he protects her <clears throat> so again not a bone from the head not over the man not a bone from the foot not under the man so all right any questions so far pretty straightforward fun stuff marriage all right Leaving and cleaving. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave... This is the first wedding, by the way, or first marriage, not wedding, but you know, the first marriage union. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Do we know any people that maybe haven't left? No, don't say names. I'm just asking. Uh, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Okay, so that's the first union right there. So you leave your father and your mother, and of course in some translations it says cleave to your wife. So leaving and cleaving is a fun little rhyme, right? All right, so that's the first you could write. If someone says, hey, well, where's marriage in the Bible? Where's the same marriage? Well, the word's not there, but that's where it happens. It's right there at the beginning. So... How should marriages be structured according to... There's a passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 22. This is a real fun one. Um, husbands like to throw these around and wives like to throw these around. But if you pay attention to it, there's a balance here. And it's a really interesting balance. So sometimes uh, only one or two of these get thrown around you know, to show authority and so forth. But then if you read the whole thing, you see what real love is. So... How should marriages be structured according to Ephesians 22? Well, verse 22. Of which chapter? Uh, 22. There's no 22. There's no 22. Oh. oh, shoot. What did I do? <laughs> Hang on. Oh, it's verse 22. Sorry, Ephesians 5.22. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I left off the 5. that? I'm going to write that down. Sorry about that. Good grief. This marker doesn't work. Because you're filling the text. That is going to be one of my typos. All right. Thank you. All right. 522. Sorry about that. 
All right, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ooh, you leave that by itself and it sounds real like, I'm sure there, actually there's churches out there that preach that and they stop. It's like this is the way marriages are and then they just leave it there. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So you have the husband being the head of the wife, or the, the, the marriage, as, as Christ also is head of the church. So he's the authority, the husband's the authority. Okay, move on, 24. But the church, this is a but, so there's a contrast here. So it's like authority, yes, and then we have a but, so something's different here. As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Okay? Still sounds kind of authoritative, I guess, but we're also talking about authority to Christ, not a, not a mortal man. We're talking about a perfect God here. So, <clears throat> verse 25 changes things. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that makes things a little more clear. <clears throat> husbands don't you know just be this authority figure over your wife and tell her what to do and make her do this and that I need a sandwich right now sort of thing you know um, love your wife just as Christ loved the church so Christ of course died for the church gave himself for the church um, that's how we should you know be to our to our wives obviously so <clears throat> Verse 26 through 31 is the pretty much the end of this little section, but it's uh, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Husbands <coughs> ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Oh my goodness. So you take care of your own body, you got to take care of your wife too, so... He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are the members of his body. And then, of course, it quotes Genesis 2 there. Uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we have a kind of a full circle there with the whole, with whole marriage. So from Ephesians back to Genesis. So, okay, <clears throat> that's marriage. That's what it is and why we have it. Now, Gentile brides. So this would be non-Jewish brides. I'm going to turn the air down just a little bit because I am feeling it. Uh, let's see. Cool. There we go. Okay. Okay, Gentile brides. There are seven types in the scripture. Seven uh, Gentile examples. Um, you could call them, uh, yeah, like, uh, well, types, like we've been talking about. So basically a, <clears throat> an example of something that's going to be fulfilled later. So the first type is Adam and Eve. And it was Eve Gentile. <clears throat> Not Jewish. I mean, there's no Jews yet. So, yeah, easy one, right? So, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, for all those had not sinned, like the likeness of, of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So, 
Adam there is, of course, was a type of Jesus. And that's in Romans 5. But Eve is a Gentile bride. So with Adam being the type of the of Jesus, we have his bride <clears throat> bride being Eve in a way. So and she's Gentile. So why am I talking about that? Well we'll see. Second type is Isaac and who? Rebecca. Which we're going to be talking about later in more detail. So I won't get into that yet. Third type, Joseph and who? Azanath. And was she Jewish? No, she was not. And that's in Genesis 41, 45, if you want to write that down. Pharaoh named Joseph Zephanath Pania, sorry, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. The fourth type, Moses and Zipporah. Now that's a name. <clears throat> Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. And she was Gentile. I thought this stuff was forbidden. Oops. Forbidden. Well, fifth type, Salmon, not Salmon. Salmon and Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, she was the she was the bad girl, right? But she ended up being playing a huge role in the scripture. She helped out a couple of spies. <clears throat> this is an interesting story because if you start talking about how many know the story of the spies and Rahab, yeah. Now, what did she do to protect the spies? She lied. She what? She lied, right? Does that make it right? Ooh. Was it a sin to lie? Yes. Yes. But thanks be to God, we have what? Grace. Grace, right? So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a. I heard a, like an hour and a half long study about just that, and it was really interesting because. Because, yeah, she, she lied. She sinned. She did good, so but that doesn't justify it. It was still wrong. I'm not saying, you know, bad Rahab, you know. I'm sure she did. I mean, we've all, you know, we've all messed up. But um, <clears throat> she did sin. But because of God's grace, you know, it's not going to be anything that's held against her. Our sin's been paid for. Her sin's been paid for. So it's not a big deal. But just letting you know that it's not, that that, that could be a whole other discussion. So I'm not trying to start anything, but... Just kind of an interesting question. So, <clears throat> Salmon and Rahab. Salmon was, of course, the father of Boaz. We start getting into familiar names here. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Another Gentile bride. So, we have another one, sixth type Boaz and Ruth. The whole book of Ruth is an amazing story, and there's a lot of. Um, lot of you could say the whole book of Ruth is about the church in a lot of ways. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there. <clears throat> but yeah, Ruth is Gentile. She's a Moabitess. Um, Boaz is, of course, the kinsman redeemer. And, of course, Jesus is a kinsman redeemer, is our kinsman redeemer. And, of course, Boaz took 
Ruth as his Gentile bride. And what's interesting about that story, there's a lot of stuff that's interesting about that story, but she is with Boaz during the threshing floor scene in the story. And of course, the threshing floor scene in, in, in scripture is usually a, an, you could say an allegory to the tribulation period. So the Gentile bride is not in the tribulation, or is not in the threshing floor with, with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. So a lot of parallels there too, but we'll move on. <clears throat> and of course, the seventh type, seventh type of Gentile bride, what do you think it is? Church. Church. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And there just happens to be how many? Seven. What a coincidence, right? And that's why we studied coincidence in, uh, was it part two? I was going to make a part one, but what's the fun in that? All right, so the definitive husband and bride. What do you think it is? Blank and the blank. Jesus and the church. Oh, my goodness. You guys are on fire tonight. Jesus and the church. And I have the right verse written down here, the right chapter and everything. Ephesians 5, chapter 5, 32. Why? This mystery is great. And, of course, what's a mystery? Something in the Old Testament that was hidden. It's revealed in the New Testament. It's not something that's still hidden. It's something that's been revealed the way it's written. But I am speaking... Excuse me. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's talking about marriage here, and then he throws him a curveball and says, oh no, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Not a real not a husband and a bride, but yeah, so. <clears throat> okay, so Jesus and the church is the ultimate husband and wife, and you would write why, and where's that at? It's Ephesians 5.32, so if you get into a discussion with someone, you can say, yep, there it is. So, now we're going to move on to the Jewish wedding. This gets kind of interesting. I'm going to read a lot of stuff here, but I'm like, that's, I do have some blanks and stuff for you to fill in. So, if you notice, there's a little checkbox, these little checkboxes. The, the unchecked checkbox, is that what you call that? The empty checkbox is basically the earthly type of what's this aspect of the Jewish wedding. And then the checkboxed the check, okay, wait, the checked checkbox, is that how you say it, uh, would be the fulfilled spiritual part of the Jewish wedding. So you'll see a lot of parallels here. It'll start, if you've never heard this before, I'll just say it, it might blow your mind a little bit. It's pretty neat. So the first part of the Jewish wedding is there's a contract. It's our, you know, like a usage agreement, right? No, not the same thing, but the the ketubah, take another starting to go here. The ketubah is a written agreement. Someone, some people say ketubah. It's between the father of the groom and the family of the bride. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's a written agreement. So you've got uh, the father of, the, of this future husband who's going to go after this bride, there has to be an agreement between the father and the family of the bride. So you could say that was fulfilled by God the Father and he made the new covenant with Israel. And that's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, of course. So <clears throat> and you, you can read those later if you want. So there's a contract, okay? And then there's a payment made. 
the groom's father gives a mohar, a gift, to the bride's family for the bride for the well-being of the wedding. So, father's going to send the son after this bride, but there has to be a payment made. Hmm. So the father gave his son. The father gave us his son as a payment for sin for our eternal well-being. And I'm really glad we don't do this in our weddings here, the ceremonial bath. That would just be kind of awkward, but, you know, if you choose to do that, that's fine. Just don't ask me to jump in. No. <clears throat> so after the payment is accepted, the mikvah, or the ritual cleansing, takes place of the bride and the groom separately. So basically, it's like a baptism. So Jesus is baptized by John, so the, hus- the, the, the groom is baptized the ultimate groom, Jesus. And then, of course, Christians are ritually baptized just to show our faith. And then you've got the betrothal. The bride and the groom are betrothed and cannot be separated, so the bride and the groom are basically committed at this point. They can't separate. There has to be a really good reason if you want to separate, but this is, of course, the earthly aspect of it. It has to be a divorce, payment, and all that. But <clears throat> those who put their faith in Jesus as Savior are part of the church, his bride, can never be separated. And there's that's just a few scriptures for that, but there's a lot. We uh, at Stillwater Bible understand that you can't lose your salvation. You can't give it back. I actually have family that, and if you watch this, I'm sorry. I'm not going to say your name. <laughs> But I have family that think you can give your salvation back. I don't know if they feel that way anymore, but they've said it. So, of course, that's not scriptural either, because... Anyway. The period of waiting. So this is kind of interesting. So you got the the betrothal, the commitment of the two. The bride and the groom. Then you call... You've got this thing called the period of waiting, which could last from one to seven years. The point is, you don't know how long it lasts. The bride and the groom are separated. The groom goes to prepare a place in his father's house. What does that sound like? Kind of interesting, right? The groom goes and leaves, prepares a place in his father's house for his bride to live. He could be gone a year, could be gone two years. There's no telling. But the point is, is she's waiting for him to come back at any moment. He could return at any moment. And it's a surprise, and that's what we'll see next here in a few minutes one to seven years period of time when the groom prepares a home for his bride which is usually the home of his father Jesus ascends into heaven obviously he goes away the angel tells us he will return exactly as he left and he's preparing a place in his father's house to take us to and he's been doing that for the better part of about this time period since he's been gone so the parting gift before the bride and the groom separate The groom gives his bride a gift. That's interesting. Bridal gift as a reminder that that he loved her and would return to her. What gift did Jesus give us before he left? Or when he left? Holy Spirit. And he also gives us spiritual gifts. So that's interesting. While the church awaits Christ's return, she is ready to keep her, to ready herself by keeping busy and preparing such as a Oh, wait, I, didn't, I just skipped over that. Sorry. During the waiting period, while the bride waits, while we wait, she should prepare for the return of the bride. And this is the, of course, earthly wedding. 
She keeps busy and prepares herself for the wedding day, such by making wedding garments, having lamps prepared, and learning how to be a good wife. I didn't write this, so don't get mad at me. That's just what they do. So while the church waits for Christ, it, the church's groom, she's ready to keep herself or ready herself by keeping busy and preparing, such as obeying all that he has commanded us. So great commission, etc., etc. And of course, his return is imminent, which means it could be at any moment. <clears throat> People say he's going to return on July 18th, 2024. <clears throat> yeah, right? No. Um, don't set dates because it could be before we even finish this, before my voice goes out. So, the wedding procession. So the groom's father determines the appropriate time for the groom to go to receive his bride in a procession. Have you noticed I'm skipping some of these words because I'm not going to pronounce them correctly? In which a messenger of the groom would shout. It's usually a shout. It's a surprise, and it's usually at midnight, which is kind of interesting. So she'd be staying up late a lot, wondering if the groom's going to show up, you know, ready for this shout. Of course, does that sound familiar? Let's keep going. It's not a good sign when there's crickets when I'm, when I'm talking. You know. <laughs> that happens a lot, though, at my house. So, behold, the bridegroom. So he shouts. There's a shout. Behold, the bridegroom. A shofar would blow. I should have brought my shofar because that thing is loud. But uh, <clears throat> I didn't want to do that to you also. Uh, everyone who has been invited would join in the procession as they paraded to the bride's home where they would find the bride wa waiting wearing a veil. So she's veiled. <clears throat> After a period of waiting that only the father knows, of course the father is the one that plans this when, he arrived, when he's going to come back, Jesus will return to take his bride at the rapture. A messenger or angel will shout, of course, a trumpet will blow. So a lot of very specific parallels. It's not foggy. It's very specific. Everyone who has been invited will join in the procession. So, <clears throat> all right, in the consummation of the, the marriage, once the, this is the hoopah, of course, that's the word I, I do know how to say. So once the bride and the groom are together again, they enter into the hoopah, the bridal chamber, to consummate the marriage. We'll keep going. The church, having been taken in secret or veiled, are united as one with Christ. And of course, the church is taken in, in secret in a way, basically, it kind of implies unexpectedly, um, well, at an unannounced time. It's just, bloom, I'm here and, I'm, and you're gone. So I'm taking my bride with me and the church is gone or the bride's gone. Okay, then there's a big feast. And it usually lasts seven days. Isn't that interesting? What's going on on earth when the church is gone? Or what starts eventually? Tribulation period. Does it start the day the church is gone? We don't know. It could. It might be a month, a week, years. It's, it, no one knows. But we do know that the church is gone when the tribulation period starts. I'm pretty sure it's going to accelerate a lot of earthly events when, you know, all these Christians just vanish. You know, most of them pay taxes. That's going to cause a real economic, you know. 
uh, it's just going to be a really interesting time. So, um, I mean, I don't want to be here when that happens. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, anyway. So, <clears throat> there is implication, there, there's, there's a hint in Revelation that we'll get to kind of watch what's going on here. So, I don't know if it's going to be like a movie theater setting or what, but anyway. Um, so, moving on. Enough of my weird comments. So, <clears throat> at the wedding feast or the... I'm not saying that. Which lasts seven days. The bride is kept away in the bridal chamber until the last day of the feast. At the end of the feast, the bride is unveiled and joins the festivities. So, seven days. Interesting. Seven years on the tribulation. or the I call it Daniel's 70th week because it's only referred to as the tribulation. I think once. It's basically, it's not really called the tribulation in the scripture. I'm not against calling it that. I just like calling it what... I've seen it called, and it's usually Daniel's 70th week, or it's called the Day of the Lord in a lot of places. It's called um, two and a half years, and then two and a half years, three and a half years, and three and a half years, sorry. I can't do math. And then, uh, you know, <clears throat> so don't come back to me and say, you know, Jeremiah said we shouldn't call it tribulation, because it's not, it's okay if you call it that. It's just, there's a lot of things it's called, so. Um, it's referred to as, I like to call it Daniel's 70th week because that's where you first get the, it's going to be seven years number. So during Daniel's 70th week, there will be a seven year period on earth um, during which there will be a wedding feast in heaven, which is of course in Daniel 9.27 and 7.25. During this time, the church is hidden away or veiled from the earth. At the end of the seven years, Jesus and his bride will feast together with all those who were invited of course, that's Revelation 19. The bride is unveiled and she is revealed to the world at her return with Jesus at his second coming. And we are all riding horses. So if you haven't ridden a horse, start practicing. <clears throat> I don't know if we'll have saddles. That's terrifying. But anyway, um, I've never done bareback, but I've heard it's terrifying. Anyway, so the marriage, the newly wedded couple go to live in the home that was prepared by the husband during the waiting period and live together until death do they part. Of course, that's the earthly marriage. There is no death in the, obviously at the start of the eternal state, the bride will be with Christ for all eternity in the place he prepared in his father's house. So that's the Jewish wedding details and you can see a whole lot of parallels there. This goes way back. Um, we as Christians, of course, anyone as a Christian can see this and go, well, that's so that's it. that's so detailed. It's it's crazy, but um, others un, unbelievers will go. No, that's just a ceremony. So, <clears throat> if you want to keep this, and maybe if it comes up in discussion, maybe at Thanksgiving or something, we all talk about weird stuff at Thanksgiving, right? Politics and this stuff. Um, well, here you go. There's your reference. So, the marriage of Isaac. <clears throat> that's really the meat of this tonight. You doing okay on time? Yeah. Okay. First blank on that page, seven years. Seven days and seven years. Yeah, the 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 wedding feast during a Jewish wedding is about seven days, and then the wedding feast um, during the tribulation, of course, is seven years. So it might feel like seven days to us. Who knows? We'll be we won't be here. It wouldn't surprise me if it's going to be a seven day period for us. That'd be a really long feast if it's seven years. I mean, I don't, I like to eat, so who knows. Um, <clears throat> it probably shows. The marriage of Isaac occurs in Genesis chapter 24. 23 is, of course, not really the meat of what we're talking about, but we'll, 
And what happened in Genesis 23? Well, of course, what happened in Genesis 22? You have the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac. Remember, Isaac's probably a young man, probably in his late 20s, early 30s. I personally think he's probably the same age as Jesus when he was doing the exact same thing several thousand years later after this little prophetic event. Then after that, we have Genesis 23, and then, of course, Sarah dies. And she was buried. So that's really Genesis 23. I mean, that's the summary of what happens in Genesis 23, of what we need to know. So in Genesis chapter 24... This is when we, of course, let me, we left off in Genesis 22. I'm trying to think where we stopped. Abraham and Isaac go down back to the bottom of the hill, but let's read it. Uh, Genesis 22. Let me get there real quick. 22 or 24? I'm going to start at Genesis 22, the very end of it. So what happened in Genesis 22, Abraham is holding the knife, the angel of the Lord, hint, hint, go back and watch the angel of the Lord, um, says, you know, stop, Abraham, Abraham, because you've got to say a man's name twice to get his attention. Just a joke. Um, <clears throat> and he says, you know, and, and he gives them the ram, which of course is caught in the thorns, in the thicket by his horns which might just be coincidence, hint, hint, episode two. Um, <clears throat> but you've got the Savior Ram, the sacrifice, with thorns on his head. It's just a picture. It's just another specific detail, in my opinion, anyway. I don't, I don't think that's there by accident. So, <clears throat> anyways, after that happens, we have Abraham and Isaac. In verse 19, it says, Abraham returned to his young men. You've got Abraham and Isaac together. But it says, Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Where is Isaac? Not mentioned. He's not mentioned, but is he there? I'm sure he didn't leave his son up there. See ya, Isaac. You know, enjoy the top of this mountain. Got some weird memories up here. No, I'm sure he took him with him. So, <clears throat> took his son with him. Of course, his son's old enough to take care of himself, but I'm still sure they went back together. But the Holy Spirit has omitted that for some reason. So now, let's jump ahead to Genesis 24. Abraham was old, I'll say. He was already old, but advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Yes, he had. So, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see some more types here. Remember, Abraham is a type of the Father, God the Father. Isaac is a type of Jesus the Son, because Isaac is the promised son, and he just happened to be birthed miraculously. He wasn't a natural birth, in a way. I mean, he was a miraculous, Isaac was a promise, wasn't supposed to happen birth, okay, with these two older folks. So we have a picture of Jesus with him. Okay, so verses 1 through 4, what is Abraham's servant's name? What does that matter? Well, let's talk about it. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all they had owned, 
please place your hand under my thigh. I'm not going to go into details on why they do that. It's just a custom they did to kind of show a promise. But, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. What is the servant's name? Hmm. We don't know yet, do we? Okay, we'll put unnamed there. And then write Genesis 15 too, because that's where it tells us his name later. But we'll... Huh? Yeah, Genesis 15 too is where his name is, but we'll talk about that later. Okay, verses... Well, okay, I'll just tell you. His name's Eliezer. What does that matter? Um, Well, in Hebrew, that means helper or comforter. Okay, so what does that make you think of? Who is the servant a picture of? We've got Abraham the father. We've got the son, Isaac. What's left? The Holy Spirit, right? So why would the Holy Spirit not be named here? Look at John 16, 13 if you want. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, sorry, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. So the Holy Spirit's an equal with God. He's, you know, they're, they're an equal trinity, three persons, perfect union. The Holy Spirit, though, when you see the Holy Spirit working, he always is kind of in a background. He's not at the forefront of things. I mean, he's literally not named here. So, and if you want to write John 16, 13 there, that's the scripture which talks about him being not on his own initiative. He's not going to go, hey, look, I'm the Holy Spirit. Here's what I do. He's just going to do it. So, okay, so... Moving on, verses 5 through 9. Got a couple of things here. Verses 5 through 9. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Abraham said, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But the woman is not willing to follow you. Okay, we'll stop there. The son is not supposed to leave the land. So during Jesus' ministry, his life, he did leave the land. But during his ministry, did he leave the land? No, he never did. He stayed right around Capernaum, Galilee area, Jerusalem. During his whole ministry. And then the servant accepted the assignment. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So the servant, you could say the Holy Spirit, said, okay, I'll do that. I'm not going to argue with you. Verses, he was obedient, basically. So verses 10 through 54, I'm not going to obviously read all that. But the servant gave Rebecca, what did the Holy Spirit give the bride when Jesus left? Spiritual gifts. The servant gave Rebecca gifts here. Verse 53 is really the highlight. So I'm not going to read 
all those before it, but it gets up to that point. The servant brought out articles of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. So <clears throat> we've got the servant, the Holy Spirit, giving gifts to the bride, the church. So we got another type here. <clears throat> That's 1 Corinthians 12 if you want to get into gifts. Okay, so verses 55 through 61. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but her brother and her mother said, Let the girl stay with us at least a few days, or let the bride stay with us at least a few days, say ten. Afterwards she may go. And he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. So the servant needed to leave immediately with the bride. You could say the Holy Spirit, don't have to write that down, but the Holy Spirit obviously needed to leave with the church. Go get the church sort of thing, okay? Of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell the church, so when the church is gone from the earth, the Holy Spirit will be gone too. The Holy Spirit will still be working here. He won't be in the people, right? He'll be doing a lot here. He'll probably do be doing, there's actually some people that think, the Holy Spirit will probably be doing more during the tribulation than he's ever done before. It's going to be real busy. There's going to be a lot of people saved during the tribulation period. Um, Maybe like people in the Old Testament that didn't necessarily have... It will be a different time, yeah. Like there will be... I mean, yeah, it's going to be kind of a separate... uh, What's the word I'm thinking of? Dispensation. Dispensation, thank you. It'd be like a separate dispensation so that tribulation saints or the tribulation believers were going to be dealt with differently than the church just like the church is dealt different dealt with differently than before the church the saints before the church the old testament saints and uh and so forth and then you've got people before the law and so forth so i mean just different different groups of people and of course if you take the mark of the beast that scripture indicates that that's a definite no-no that if someone takes the mark of the beast that you, it's too late, that you're done. I mean, you, you, so right now we think, well, um, if I do something bad, do I lose my salvation? Is it over? No. In that time, during the tribulation period, if you take the mark of the beast, you can't get salvation. That's just what the scripture implies there. So um, we won't get into a big eschatology talk, the debate here, but that's just what it says. So there's a lot of different stuff going on during the tribulation period. So... <clears throat> so the servant needed to leave immediately with the bride. The family, <coughs> excuse me, the family begged the servant to stay a little longer and not take the bride. You can kind of picture people, bless you. You can kind of picture people in heaven that are already with the Lord looking down at the earth. This is what I think of anyway looking down at the earth and seeing their family that's not saved yet and going, don't take them yet. Don't go get them yet because they're not saved yet sort of thing. I mean, does that not sound terrible? That's kind of, you know, but that's kind of what we, that's kind of what this implies here that they're like, no, no, don't go yet. Don't get them yet. And, uh, but he's like, I have to, you know, sort of thing. So what are you calling me for? They were holding on to their family. Yeah, basically. I mean, that's kind of what it, kind of feels like the family begged the servant to stay and don't take the bride yet don't go get them yet 
I mean, do we have family that are not saved? Does anyone have? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, if we're with the Lord and they're still here, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, um, Lazarus and the servant, um, or Lazarus and the rich man. Um, you know, he's like, let me just tell my, you know, let me tell my family about what you have. And it was like, no, it's too late, you know. So <clears throat> it really brings upon an urgency to evangelize to our everybody, really. So, okay, so <clears throat> Rebecca went with the servant by faith. So the bride went with the Holy Spirit by faith. What did she have to do to get taken? Nothing. It was by faith, right? She did it because she was told to, and she said, okay, she was obedient. She didn't have to do any ritualistic anything. The bride followed the servant on their way to the bridegroom. So, since we've talked about this, we've got some questions here. Do we earnestly desire Christ to return? Yeah, right? We all, every day we say, you know, come, come Lord Jesus, right? We'd like for him to be here any day now, right? It's getting crazy here. <clears throat> so, what about those people that are lost, that are still here? Maybe there's that one person that we haven't talked to. I'm not trying to get into a big evangelistic discussion here but what if there's that one person that maybe I haven't spoke to that I'm thinking about that needs to hear that message or maybe they have heard it and they haven't decided yet <clears throat> we don't want them to be left behind basically is what I'm trying to get at so <clears throat> excuse me is it possible that each day is another chance to witness to you know that's why the Lord's tarrying he's giving us those chances um Again, remember we talked about Noah. He didn't start the flood until the oldest person, literally the oldest person in history died. He gave them that many years to believe or something, or you know, change something. And uh, is it possible that that's what he's doing right now? He's giving us more and more time to go and do what he wants us to do, not just wait and sit around and go, any day now, Lord, you know, we need to work is, what is what's kind of happening here, so... <clears throat> Which brings me to another question. Revelation 21.4 is the verse where God wipes away the tears. It's all, everything's, up, everything's done. The eternal state started. Um, the final battle's done. Eternity's beginning. And God is wiping away tears from eyes. Why are there tears? I may be wrong, but I personally think it's tears of missed opportunities. I think people are like, you know, I guarantee you there's going to be people there that will have family that didn't make it or friends or coworkers or whatever. And um, <clears throat> so not to lead this down a kind of a dark, you know, path here, but it, I think it just kind of gives us that, um, that assignment to, again, evangelize. So whoever it might be so if we have that person on our heart or those people on our heart we just need to you know do what we can so <clears throat> because there's that number ticking down and the last person that's saved it's it so and it could be someone that we know so okay 
verses 62 to 67. All right, let me get back there real quick. Hopefully this last drop of water lasts. I'm almost done. The son is praying, and he's possibly mourning the events of Genesis 23. His mother died. You know, that's terrible for any son, any child. So, the son is praying. When the bride sees the bridegroom, or saw the bridegroom, she knelt to the ground. So you kind of get a every knee shall bow type thing, but of course this is the church. So the church obviously is going to bow. When we see Jesus, I'm sure we're going to fall on our face. So I don't care if it hurts. I'm going to fall on my face. And... um, and the son loved the bride. And that's kind of how, if you want to read those passages later, you can. Those verses, but um, my voice is almost gone. So, <clears throat> all right. Summary, and then we'll go over the quiz and ask any discussion. Marriage was specifically ordained by God in Eden. <clears throat> Thank you. Yes, you are the man. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Now you got to do like the loaves and fishes and just start handing them out, you know. <laughs> so, thank you though. So marriage, and I want every time I see that, I want to. I'm thinking Princess Bride. <laughs> I'm not going to do it though. Marriage, anyway. Marriage was specifically ordained by God in Eden. Eden. So it wasn't something that was in the law or the, you know, the the Torah or the or the prophets or something in the New Testament that Jesus did or Paul did. It was something that God set up Himself, man and woman. That's the way marriage is supposed to be. So Abraham is a type of or model of God the Father. Abraham's servant is a type or model of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca is a type or model of the church. And Isaac is a type or model of Jesus, the bridegroom. Isn't that neat? Just, what a coincidence, right? Of course, as a reminder, coincidence is, does not exist. So even the littlest things. Because if coincidence did exist, that means that God's not in control of everything. And God's it would be able to say, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. So um, that would mean that something was out of his control and it just happened. So um, yeah, I think we made it clear that last that second session that coincidence does not and it's not even a Hebrew word in the original Hebrew so anyway <clears throat> memory verses John t- do what the church the church needs to be blank in this life ours is a little out of order from yours apparently oh is it yeah wait what's your say the church needs to be blank in this life that's supposed to be like a medium or something oh that's probably after I that was probably an old let me see what yours says. 
yeah, just. I don't have an answer for that one. It was probably just along with the old curriculum. So yeah, you can erase it or mark it out. Or you can try to guess what the answer is. I just don't have it. <laughs> All right, John 10, uh, 28 through 30. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I love this verse because there's two hands involved here. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you can kind of, you know, like when you're carrying a little kid, and you're, you know, you got them by both hands, so it's like you can't get away. So, and if you're like my kid, you just lift your legs up, and I have to, yeah. <clears throat> in Revelation 19:14, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So that's the church the bride.